0: Welcome to the we RSC podcast. This is Eric McKinney uh, joined this week by Greg Katz. Greg, welcome. It's been a uh, a little bit of time since we got one of these. so appreciate you joining. Oh, my pleasure good to be back with everybody. Uh, the first thing we wanted to jump into this week is uh, hopefully you all have noticed uh, on we RSC kind of this spring and throughout the summer we are going to be letting fans and users pick. The official WeRSC all-time USC Trojans team, and this is something that uh, we had kicked around kind of over the years Uh, a a while ago. I don't know if you guys remember it, but a few of us were able. We we drafted sort of our own teams, throwing all the all the USC names uh, into a pot, and and we kind of went through. I think we ended up. Greg, you were a part of it. I think we ended up with four teams. Um, there, There were four of us that did it, and we kind of. At the end of it, sort of, you know, who has the best team? I like my running backs. I like your safeties, you know, that sort of thing. But we thought this this offseason would be kind of a, a nice time to to put sort of an official stamp on a WeRSC all-time USC team. So far, we're through two positions. Uh, we've gotten through quarterback, through running back. Greg, I, I just wanted to get your take so far. Quarterback, Matt Leinart, running back, Marcus Allen, and Reggie Bush. We let people vote for for two running backs. Just your quick take so far. Have have the fans, have the users gotten it right so far?
1: Well, one out of two ain't bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess you're I mean, good with the quarterback.
1: I'm, I'm good with the quarterback. I think that's kind of a no-brainer. With due respect to everyone that voted for someone outside of Matt Leinart, Uh, I think the more important thing is that you vote and that you have a say in it so that you don't don't complain about it. So uh, to those of you that voted on that, kudos. Uh, I do take exception, though, to the running back uh, situation. Um, For me, uh, who I think is the best running back uh, ever at USC uh, is OJ Simpson. Uh, Part of the problem with a poll is the good news is, if you're young, you're young. The bad news, is you get to see some of these players that were that were um, candidates, specifically Simpson. Um, I'm not going to expound on all of his greatness. I fully accept and admit that he's a scoundrel <laughs> off the field and that he did a lot of really bad things. But I try to look at everybody uh as in terms of what did they do on the field and kind of take out the off the field, uh, uh, low lights, if you will. So I, I saw Simpson as the one that I would have picked number one. Then you get down to Bush and uh, and Marcus. Now, Bush, I think, is the, almost the, well, he might even be, to pass OJ a little bit in his agility and quickness because he was a smaller player. Uh, I think he was the, uh most explosive player I've seen in S C. Uh, uh but Simpson was tremendously explosive, don't get me wrong. Simpson was, you know, six two, two oh seven and uh, you know, watch the highlights you can see for yourself. Marcus was a little bit different situation for me because he was more of an all around back. uh you know, he was a full back. He was you know, he was a great tailback. back. But I think, you know, for me, I would go with um Marcus. Because I thought Marcus was the bigger back, uh, but you know they played in two different eras. Uh, but anybody who voted for for Bush to be one of the two, I I wouldn't quibble with it to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't like what happened off the field. We all know what happened, but I tried to take that out of it and just take him for what he was.
0: Yeah, I, I think at quarterback, um, Matt liner would be the guy that I would go with. I, I it it feels wrong a little bit because you're just, it feels like you're slighting Carson Palmer. And I think that obviously just one guy can be named there. And I think maybe Carson doesn't, you know, the the Heisman Trophy and what he did uh, that last year. But I don't know if he gets credit, enough credit for kind of sticking with things and where he started his career, where USC was at the start of his career and where they wound up at the end of it and the amount of effort that that really took to to be the quarterback throughout all of that and, and to be, you know, the, the guy and have everybody look at you. I think it's one thing to step in when things are rolling a little bit. And again, don't get me wrong where Matt liner had the team to where they wound up, you know, during his career here, that's a, that's another level, another step up, but uh, I, you know, it, it was one of those things where I think Liner gets it just the the numbers he put up, the way the offense was rolling there. But but I think it's close. I think it's maybe closer than than maybe what the vote had um, with Carson for me. And it, it might just be I I was at school uh, for for Carson's uh, the the latter part of his career. Um, and well, then, you know, go um, ahead. I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to move to running back. If you have something on quarterback, go ahead, jump in.
1: No, I wanted I wanted to support what you're saying in a way because what is what if Carson had the same number of years under Norm Chow, shall we say, uh, during liner years, where the record be as good or better, like well, pretty much couldn't be better because they were 33, uh, <laughs> you know, in a row. It's pretty hard to get better. But I, but the question would be, could he have equal? what liner did i say yes he could have but he came in carson came in of course in what uh, under carroll in the second year 2002 i believe it is and obviously he got so so great that he was able to win the heisman trophy but i think your point is well taken uh about carson's uh greatness i think the one thing about Liner though is if i ask you is there a signature play for you, for Carson Palmer? Would you be able to just one roll right off your head? And if I said, what was the signature play for Matt Leinart, you probably would say fourth and nine at Notre Dame. Absolutely. Dwayne Jarrett. Absolutely. So sometimes it's a signature moment that can break a tie. But I
0: I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think you made some very good points. And then the the running back for me, I, I don't have a huge problem with it. I, again, I have to defer to the guys who, who saw John Arnett, who saw OJ Simpson, you know, who's, who saw some of those guys. I watched Reggie Bush and uh, it, it just – there were very few players where it felt like maybe you only needed him on the field for about three minutes and you could win a game in those three minutes. And, and I – i'm willing to accept the fact that that maybe o j was one of those guys for for watching Reggie. It just felt like you always could win because he could score somehow six touchdowns in a minute and a half and, and when you look at the numbers it's not like he was in the the top two of you know u s c career uh marks in in rushing or scoring or touchdowns or or anything like that i mean you you've got guys. You know Marcus Allen's numbers and Charles Weiss numbers and and some of those numbers here, uh, kind of dwarf a little bit what Reggie's doing. I mean, you had um, you had real recent guys that have, that have hit Reggie's sort of total numbers and, and rushing touchdowns and things like that. But that sort of that magic that he had, that electricity, I have no problem with him being on the team. I, I don't necessarily. I'm not going to guarantee. He's one of the two best running backs of all time. But, you know, it it was being in the Coliseum when the Reggie chants were going and just knowing that literally anything is possible uh, when he's on the field. Again, I I don't have – I know a lot of people kind of had a problem with him getting that vote and and being on the field. And, again, I'm like you. I'm separating everything that happened, you know, after his career, during his career, off the field stuff. I I don't think um, that comes into that into the vote for me. Uh but but I I will support him being one of the two best just because specifically for me being there, uh the those feelings you had kind of watching him play, it was at the time you thought I you know I'm not going to see this again. This this is something that is truly special and I think you know having Lendell White there and and he's a guy who didn't get a ton of support in the poll but I definitely wanted to put him on there just because you look at his numbers and what he did, it felt like the difference between them is you needed Lendell White for the whole game to to really get going and and he could sort of pound on guys. And I'm not saying that that's a negative at all, but that little element that Reggie had, like I said, where, you know, 45 seconds left in the game and you're down 10, somehow you still think he's going to be able to do something uh, and, and get you that win. For me, that's why, I'm comfortable with, with him being one of those two guys.
1: Well, I, I think that when I when I look back and having seen, obviously, Bush, uh, Allen, and, and, and Simpson, you know, the thing about Allen and, and, and Simpson, they both ran in the eye formation, the pure eye formation for the most part. Uh, and and I know what the offensive lines were for each one of these uh, guys. Uh, but, you know, the one thing that we don't know and we'll never know is if Bush had come to ST during the era of John Robinson or John McKay, he would have been coached differently. He would have been built up differently. He'd still have the same skill set, but maybe he could have carried the ball 30 times a game because they would have changed his body. Uh, you know, Pete Carroll, he alternated Bush with Glendale with White, so he was never totally uh, there. The thing about uh, Allen and Simpson was they definitely could run between the tackles, and they were tough as nails. So, uh, you know, that's not Red, that's not Reggie's fault. But when I look at the running backs, I, I kind of look at the you – know, I've got to give the Allen and Simpson the nod about uh, being tough inside. Uh, let's just remember one of the worst plays ever called in the history of USC. That, that's a, they had Bush out of the game. Uh, and, you know, they, had, they gave the ball to Lindell White. Not a bad call for Lindell White, but not have Bush in the game. They kind of give you their thought process. Uh, which I'm still trying to figure out, by the way, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we don't that, have that enough time that. for that. There's no time for that. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was it was a lot of fun trying to vote on that uh, on the running back. I will say that.
0: Yeah, and so now we have moved on to wide receivers, and and wide receiver is one of those things. Not you know not surprisingly, but a real sort of recency bias with the names in there and what we saw. I mean, it, especially since sort of Lane Kiffin came in and, and really pushed some of those guys out into the forefront with with Robert Woods and Marquise Lee and, and guys like that. Juju Smith-Schuster, obviously, more recently uh, than them. But for me, it, it feels pretty easy, and it was only two years. Mike Williams and Keyshawn Johnson would be my two, and I'm not trying to sway voting at all because there's a lot of guys in there that I think Again, I just like with with the running backs where if you had given me maybe four or five guys, I would have been comfortable uh, with any of them being, you know, any of those the combination of two being those guys wide receiver is another thing you've got a lot of sort of different body types and different eras and that sort of thing. But if I can take those two guys and line them up, I I don't think there are many defensive backs that are going to give me much of an issue.
1: Well, I, you know, it, it was, I agree with Keyshawn. I, you know, I looked at these wide receivers and I said, who could control a game? Like a tailback. And I haven't seen anybody better than Keyshawn control the game in his couple of years at, at SC. And I think Mike Williams also could control the game. Uh, personally, uh, I'd have no problem if Marquise Lee was in there.
0: Uh, he, that's a, you name know, I, he, think pop he, up too.
1: I, I think that. Marquise, is, you know, if you look at the voting. Doesn't seem to get that many votes, but for my, from my perspective, uh, would you have a problem t- uh, with a catch and run by Marquise Lee? I wouldn't, um, even near the goal line. I think sometimes with any of these voting uh, for these type of uh, all-time teams, people tend to kind of, they kind of look at what happened when they left SC. What happened in the pros? Because I'll give you an example. We had, we're we not voting yet on the offensive line, but Anthony Munoz became an all-pro, all-timer, maybe best-of-all-time in the NFL, but he was injured at SC. But because of his greatness in the NFL, you think that that's what he was when he was at SC. Sure. Because uh, remember, that last year, he, I mean, I think he played one game, had a knee injury, and then he didn't come back to the Rose Bowl and played a great Rose Bowl game. And, you know, I'm not going to take that away from him. But if you look at, at at Marquise, I mean, he played, what, three years? And, um, you know, he was pretty dynamic. But you couldn't go wrong with, uh, you know, Keyshawn. You couldn't go wrong with with Mike. I think the problem with Mike was, is Mike probably, uh, by his, he would admit this, probably should not have tested the NFL. He should have come back for another year. I think if he'd come back for another year, he, he might have looked at him as the same level, at least from my perspective, as Keyshawn.
0: And I'll admit there, there's definitely some projection. Uh, I think what Mike Williams did at USC was extremely impressive. The idea of him being one of the two best—it it sort of, you know, puts like a ghost Mike Williams on the field for that junior year and what he could have done, and what you kind of, you know, thinking back, certainly hoped uh, that he would have done, but. Again, you're looking at, you know, production, Robert Woods, Marquise Lee, guys like that. It's it's you don't have to think, you know, what if you you got to see, I mean, not the not the full four years, but you got to see a lot of what they could do. And there wasn't any, you know, oh, we feel shortchanged because, uh, you know. What happened with Mike Williams? Where tried to got got told he could leave early, left early, told he couldn't leave early, and wasn't able to come back in. Which is still one. I mean, you're talking about NCAA and injustices and that kind of thing. And again, we don't have time to get into all of that. But that that's just one of the the biggest disappointments um, I, I can think of not getting to see Mike Williams in that third season. Um, well, I, I
1: couldn't agree with I couldn't agree with you more. I thought that, uh, you know, when I look at these running backs, I also say, did they have a marquee moment like, like Leonard had with, with Jarrett. And when I think of Keyshawn Johnson, he had two of them really, uh, he MVP of the Rose Bowl game. I mean, does he get any better than that? And then the year before against Texas tech, uh, you know, I mean, he, he controlled the game. Um, I also think that Mike, uh, could control the games too, but does he have a signature moment? He had a superstar, and I agree totally with what you're saying. Uh, that Phantom junior year, I think, might have been a signature moment lost.
0: Yeah, and and I'll go ahead and go with you on that. I I definitely agree with that. Um, so that that kind of wraps up and looks ahead of what we're doing with the uh, the all time team. Again, we'll hit sort of a, a position a week as we get through the off season here, and just something to help pass the time a little bit and, and spur some discussion. Uh, so, so that's a look at that. I wanted to start Greg with that because kind of some happy thoughts, happy memories, because the rest of this thing, I think is just going to get uh, a little upsetting as we go into the the next topics. <laughs> and I wanted to start us off on, on sort of a light note uh, <laughs> earlier this week. Uh, Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott uh, was on a conference call with members of the media you were able to listen to him can can, obviously a ton of stuff has come out of that afterward uh can, can you sort of give us a thought just what you heard and some of the big things that that sort of jumped out to you well you
1: know the thing that jumped out to me um more than any of the other stuff and i i don't you know it was an odd press conference first of all there were not a lot of questions asked of Scott. Uh, he's a lightning figure in the conference now. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff has come out, as you mentioned, uh, about how much money he's making, and you know, does he fly first class? None, none of that had to do was never never even mentioned in the press conference. So, for those of you who might have read my my take on it, it, it that stuff was all digging. Uh, writers digging beyond whatever. But what I took from it, which I thought was probably the thing that caught my eye, was this idea that um, the transferring of players within the conference. Uh, I, I You look at the NCAA portal, I think it's a complete disaster. Uh, it has the earmarks of being even worse next year, and I think the NCAA is, is aware of it. But now the Pac-12 has announced that uh, players – can transfer within the conference without losing a year of eligibility. They still have to stay out a year, which they call residence. But I think in the old days, the way it used to be, is you had to, you had to stay out two years within the conference. And uh, at, at first glance, I said, oh, my goodness. So they're just going to let players go from, you know, UCLA to SC or SC to UCLA, you know, with between seasons. But then when they still uh, – Scott mentioned the transferring – players must still sit out an academic year i said okay that's her because the logic was they wanted to make the experience the same uh, for a student athlete as any other student transferring within the conference um you know the other points they made was this situation with the pac-12 networks. they're trying to add some strategic players and people from technology and partner up for future involvement and i think it's something you'll probably touch on is this idea of the conference money and, and it compared to the other uh, power conferences. You know, Scott also said he wanted to show more financial clarity and, and transparency uh, between the revenue of the conference and the PAC-12 network. I know one of the nice things that probably didn't get a lot of play was this idea that um, the uh, Colorado Chancellor, uh, Philip uh, Stefano, Di Stefano was talking about more money being allocated to their health and wellness funding program to help student athletes, uh, in the area of mental health. I thought that was a good thing. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of play, but like anybody else, you know, there, they are issues that affect a, a student and uh, the fact that they're giving more money to it, I thought was, uh, you know, was kind of a good Samaritan idea if they've got the money to show it, but, um, that's, that's kind of like what it is. I thought he it was kind of interesting. He says, you know, he started off with, uh, you know, we, we we still lead the country in the most NCAA uh, titles this year, uh, you know, ten of them, and we're we're still going at it, and this is the 14th year uh, in a row that the Pac-12 will win the most NCAA championships. Although he did quickly must have been reading everybody's mind, say, although uh, football and basketball have been quote certainly below par. There's a lot of reasons for optimism as we go into the current season, and uh, to be honest with you, I think we all would agree that for the most part, football is the flag carrying uh, sport followed by basketball and um you know i don't I don't know where he gets his optimism from, but I think I guess when you're getting paid five million
0: dollars, you can be really optimistic if you want to be so and now it's- it kind of it was kind of kind of interesting, yeah. And now, officially over five million dollars that was one of the things that that came out um through through some reports after that and the i i I'm kind of speechless when he comes out and and talks at this point because it just it you know he gets to the end of it and you just sort of think what like why why is any of this sort of necessary and i think a lot of it comes from that he just he can't he can't win right now right i mean when when you aren't sending a football team uh to to the college football playoff when you know your basketball programs are not doing a lot in the tournament when you when your two big sports are just Failing, I understand wanting to come out and, and I understand that, as a conference you 're more than those two sports and and it does say something when you are constantly winning the most national championships of any conference. I do think that is a nice thing uh, when you come home from school as a kid and you tell your parents you did you know really great at lunch like that 's not you know like you didn 't go to school. To do that, what about, all what about kind of the the big important things? And, and that's sort of what it feels like. Again, I'm not trying to slight all the other sports, but there's so many issues to come out and just say, you know, these are the positives, or we're going to get these things fixed. It's it's been a long time since you've really had any sort of upward trajectory with things that matter. I mean, now when you're looking at these numbers of what USC and other Pac-12 programs are going to take home in terms of the you know campus distribution of of revenue, and you're looking at more than twenty million dollars less than what Big Ten teams are, are taking in. I mean right now you have four conferences that have publicized how much each program in the conference is making. And the PAC 12 is fourth out of the four, the, the ACC hasn't reported yet, but you're, you know, $5 million, each program behind the big 12. Uh, you're about, I look at the numbers about $13 million behind the SEC. Like this is those, those are big numbers. And that's not something where you can just say, you know, well, the Pac 12 pedigree should be able to catch up with that. You are you are falling behind. And that's year after year. That's not something where you're just $20 million behind. That's 20 million this year, 40 million, 60. I mean, that adds up so quickly. And it's just one of those things where it's like you you can't be stuck in neutral right now when there's this much money flying around. And really where each year means so much more going forward it's just sort of a tough sell for me for him to have that conference call and, and when you come out of it again there's almost nothing there's almost no time spent talking about what he actually talked about what everyone's talking about is all of the the money issues that came out again through some some digging by reporters uh And that, to me, is kind of one of those things right now where when he comes out and he's going to talk, it's one of those things where I just, I don't know, I never anticipate him saying anything right now that means a whole lot to me.
1: No, I I totally get it. I will say one thing that disappointed me in the conference, it was just a small blurb that he said at the end, that there was no update on uh, future bowl game arrangements or partnerships but he hoped that there could be some announcements at the uh Pac-12 media day in mid July you know it's a kind of a catch 22 the the schools have to be responsible for their own programs who they choose as the head coach how they recruit okay that that i don't that's not scott's uh issue but what i see and you alluded to it was this idea that a school like rutgers is getting all this money and is you know, what is S C getting for being S C. But what what kind of the one area I focus in is is this in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I, I think the bowl arrangements in the conference absolutely suck. Um you know, the Cheese It Bowl, really? The <laughs> Cheese It Bowl? Now S now S C might be in the Cheese It Bowl. Look, we're not or, here to attack Cheez Its. Like, no, no, I, I, I like. Jesus, but for that. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, is you know, you look for marquee matchups and bowl games, and the other conferences, the ACC, the Big Ten, uh, you know, the, the the big ones, you know, especially the ACC has really come on, you know. But the point I'm making is, people don't want to go to the Jesus Bowl and play Pittsburgh they'd rather play in a bowl game uh, uh in this in the southeast if they're playing a southeast conference team it's all about the matchup now i know television has a lot to do with it but i think that i i just don't see where scott has been as aggressive as i would like to get into bowl partnerships which are going to provide uh you know i always thought the holiday bowl could be a great bowl game and i actually do think it is when you know if it was played on New Year's Day or the night before, and I think they have a they have a good thing going. It's really well run. I, I like what they do, and I like the Pac-12. But being in it, but then the Alamo Bowl. I mean, do people really from the Pac-12 going to go down to San Antonio uh, and say, oh, let's whoop it up? Um, you know, it, I think the bowl arrangements have to be um, revisited, and that's part of him being the commissioner, in my opinion.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree here. The thing, the thing that gets me, and, and I'm sure that I am not alone here because this is something that you hear all the time, the idea of parody in the conference. I don't have, I don't have a huge, a huge issue with the fact that things get distributed equally. I, if, if it was up to me, the more important schools would get more money, but I understand that you're going to distribute revenue evenly. That's fine. What I, what I can't understand is why you wouldn't tweak other things to give an advantage to the bigger football programs when it comes to football. And, And this is something that the sec absolutely gets the sec knows at the beginning of the year we have maybe four programs that can win an us, us, the SEC, a national championship this year. And so they don't take Alabama and give them four road games in a row, two of them on a Thursday night. Like they know at the beginning of the year they're not going to do Vanderbilt any favors. They're not going to, you know, go out of their way to make sure South Carolina gets the same even shake that LSU and Alabama get. And that, to me, I think is the biggest problem, is that you schedule a loss for Washington. You schedule a loss for USC. You don't do the things to make sure that those programs are protected. And you've seen what happens. They they get dinged. All of a sudden, your conference is terrible. It can't compete. The other conferences understand how to protect those teams. And it's, you know, it's one of those things. I'm sorry. it, you know, when Washington state is good. Yeah. That's a really fun story. And, and Mike Leach is really fun. They're never going to get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the end of the season. If there's six, one loss teams, I I don't care who the other five are Washington state is not going to be that number one seed or or get the benefit of the doubt. And since he's been here, Graham Harrell has talked about that. Being at Texas Tech, playing at Texas Tech, he said, I knew we were never going to get that fair shake. And that's a national thing, but that's something that conferences can sort of help. And so that to me has always stuck out as an issue and a reason why it feels like the Pac 12 is just spinning its wheels right now. Anytime they sort of have something where you, you know, you know, you know who your programs are. You know who the programs are that can win a national championship, that can even be invited to the college football playoff. And making it so that, sorry again, Colorado has the same shot as a Washington, an Oregon, a a USC, even a UCLA when they're up. To me, that's just silly. That's one of those things where you talk about uh, this conference wants to play nine games, this conference is playing uh, eight games this conference plays, all FCS programs at a certain point, Th- those are all decisions that can go into it. And it seems like whenever the Pac-12 has a chance to maybe tip things in their favor, they hold themselves back. And to me, that's always been kind of an issue. But again, I, you know, you can you can pick any one of 50 uh, at this point. You know, the the bowl games, like you said, you're talking about you know, TV and, and revenue and that sort of stuff. And and I just don't see, I don't see an answer. I don't see where it's, where it's, this is, like you said, this is the optimism. The optimism is based on these things. And, And I'm willing to admit there's probably some frustration just with where USC is right now. The fact that the conference seems to mirror how USC does, because again, just like the SEC, if you don't have three or four schools that you can legitimately put up there as national chi- national champions, national title contenders, it makes it tough on your, on your conference. And right now, when the Pac-12 can't put USC up there as, hey, this is a, a big-time program, it's frustrating for USC fans, and then in turn... That's going to become frustrating for Pac-12 fans down the line because the Pac-12 is not going to get the benefit of the doubt nationally. So again, when he well, goes out that, and talks, it's just at the end of it, I I constantly am thinking, <laughs> and and then and so and and what there's never like a, here's what's going to happen. This is the way forward. Here's the fix.
1: Now what I will say to that is that believe it or not, for since we're at we are fc you know, believe it or not, you probably know this because you've you you know you've traveled throughout the conference. You know, all the schools in the Pac-12 will tell you they want USC to be great. Absolutely. They really do. They want them to be great. Uh, you listen to John Wilner, the great writer from the San Jose Mercury, who has a, a really nice column that he puts out. He's constantly hitting on the fact that SC has to be good for the Pac-12 to get recognized. No matter how you slice it, USC is West Coast football. People want SC to be good. Uh You know, if SC isn't good, it's because that's SC's internal problem for not being good. Picking wrong coaches, wrong philosophies, wrong administrators, what have you. But the point, I think, uh in, in summation from my from my perspective is, you know, uh, when UNLV, under Jerry Tarkanian, was in the Big West Conference, I'll tell you how big an effect they had. And we UNLV was nothing until, you, until Tarkanian was the head basketball coach there. The conference was known as the Pacific Coast Athletic Association, PCAA. But when Tark became the head basketball coach, they were so good that ESPN wanted to put – the conference uh on Monday night on Big Monday. If you remember Big Monday was the Big East Conference, the Big Ten, and they wanted a West Coast time zone. How big an influence did UNLV have? ESPN suggested, why don't you change your conference name to the Big West so you can be part of Big Monday? And they did it. So that shows you the power of one program. And I think SC is that type of power program historically uh, some would say, you know, obviously in the top five of all time, that they can wield that power to help the conference. So uh, anybody who's under the illusion that everybody likes seeing SC lose, I think if you like to see them lose if they're great and you beat them. To beat them
0: when they're not so good hurts everybody. Well, you mentioned historic and you mentioned beating them. So that kind of transitions into this next little little piece of news from the week. Uh, Antonio Morales from The Athletic he wrote a story and in it uh, USC senior associate athletic director Steve Lopes was quoted as talking about potentially looking at adding maybe some FCS schools to the conference going forward. USC now sort of famously is one of a a very small uh, group of schools that has never played an FCS school. Greg, your thoughts on adding FCS schools to the future schedule?
1: Well, I actually hit on this as my lead for Sunday's column. So it's a good transition for me. I will, I'll will put in summation how I feel about it. With all due respect to Steve Lopes, who I know is a nice guy and, you know, means well and all that sort of stuff. I don't know what his marching orders are from Lynn Swan. I think it's a horrible idea. I think it's a ridiculous idea. That is not who USC has been. Uh, I, I can't imagine that the that, that, that Eric McKinney family is going to fork out season tickets knowing that the second game of the season, the first game, is going to be against Sacramento State or uh, UC Davis. Now, here's the thing. People will say, well, the SEC does it. Yeah, but here's the thing. The SEC is a better conference. They are that the, the, you can't debate that in their upper echelon. I'm not saying the, the lower group like a Vanderbilt and some of the others that might, might be, you know, uh, getting in there. But the point I'm saying is that USC is going to draw people in Los Angeles when they have home and home at the Ohio state, they're going to, they're going to draw even Arkansas because it's a, it's a name, uh, you know, it's a Southeast conference, uh, you know, area. You can't bring in these schools, uh, you know, and, and figure that this is going to be it. Now, of course, the Coliseum is going to be down to 77500 So you say to yourself, well, it'll still look big. Look, if SC is so good, which they can be, okay, people would come to watch Reggie Bush. I don't care who they're playing. Uh, look, they played Fresno State that one year, and look at the Coliseum was full. But Reggie Bush is so good that, you know, people come to see him. They're like, not coming to see Fresno State. And the point I'm making is I don't think in our area of the country and I don't think for the good of the conference, they can start scheduling, uh, you know, Humpty Dumpty. Uh, well, why don't we just go schedule Occidental again? You know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, That's how I feel if, about it.
0: <laughs> look, if you're going to be nice about it, I'll go ahead and be, be the bad cop here. <laughs> okay. I I mean, I I could not agree with you more. It this is this is just a terrible idea. I, I I don't think that you can do that. For me, here's what it comes down to. If the idea is you're adding an FCS school to your schedule to get a guaranteed win to set you up better for the college football playoff, if you can't bring in San Jose State or Nevada or UNLV if you can't easily beat one of those schools and you want to replace them with an FCS school you're not you're not going to have any business being in the conversation for the college football playoff anyway like the, those schools who are going to the playoff they don't they don't need that break of playing an FCS school especially when you're USC and you can sort of have that rotation close. I mean, you have San Diego state, you have Fresno state, you have San Jose state, you have UNLV, you have Nevada, like, you know, the, the New Mexico schools, there are a lot of schools like that. I never have a problem playing programs like that because you do have Notre Dame uh, on your schedule all the time. You can put, you know, BYU sort of in that mix of schools that you could play. I just, I understand that scheduling is tough, but it feels it feels so USC right now. It, it You know, the last year or so of what we've come to expect from USC decisions, it feels so much just in line with that. When you have these other big time programs, Texas and Clemson and Alabama announcing, you know, these these massive uh Out of conference games with these big schools. Just like, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that USC agreed to play Alabama next year. That's another decision that we can go into. I don't don't know how. (laughs) Amen to that, that, brother. At the time, and certainly now. But again, that's one of those things I would always rather hear USC in that kind of an announcement than an announcement hey, we're going to start playing FCS schools because other people do it that to me was just it, it it felt so it felt so hollow and again you know the idea you know Lopes said kind of in there too was quoted as some of the fcs schools are better than some of the directional uh fbs schools that you're going to play but at the end of the day when you look at that schedule you're going to highlight oh they played an fcs school and, and again Maybe it doesn't matter, um, you know, to to people when they look at it nationally. But it just, you know, it, it feels like it feels like saying we're not great right now, so we're gonna lower our standards. And that's just never something. It's never something that feels good to hear that. So I, I mean, I would love if they found a way to keep all the FBS schools. I understand you're trying to get that extra home game every year and again if you're telling me you can't go to to fresno state or you know i know usc doesn't like they're not going to play at some of these schools but if you can't go to that school if you can't do a home and home with san diego state and just go beat san diego state at you know down in san diego easily you're you're not winning a national championship that year anyway so i i don't totally understand uh you know, that thought. And I guess there's some, you know, getting the extra home game for the revenue, uh, that sort of thing. But I, you know, I'm, I'm totally with you. It just, it felt like, it felt like just another kick, you know, when when you hear decisions time after time, after time recently coming out of USC where you're just like, you know, that, that doesn't fall in line with what, I had come to expect from u s c so again we're you know we're just hitting on kind of negative after negative at this point, but i there's not a lot of positive to me. I can't really get on board with with that idea of starting to schedule f c s teams
1: well, hopefully they won't do it, but uh you know there's always that fear that you know the people you are who's in charge, so you know if they get the people in charge that are going to schedule those schools. There's not a lot to do with it. But I tell you one where they're gonna get some competition here is UCLA is lining up a lot of big time schools for the future. And uh what'll happen is is when those schedules start coming into play, uh, even if it's five, ten years from now, and then you've got S C schedule where there's they're 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 bringing in uh, you know, U C Davis, uh people are gonna start losing uh you know, like whatever whatever happened to S C, you know uh so hopefully it doesn't happen uh i don't have a lot of confidence that it won't happen but i but i'm hoping that it does not happen to be honest with you
0: i agree uh fingers crossed um and then the, la- the so the last thing we're going to jump into and i'm going to let you really pump some sunshine here we're going to hit recruiting a little bit it, it has been uh a long long off season as far as recruiting uh they added Two players, two verbal commitments to the 2020 class last year. They got a commitment uh, during spring ball from wide receiver Josh Jackson. That's your 2020 class. Uh, The the West Coast schools are not known for picking up a ton of commitments early. I don't think that three at this point in time is – regularly sort of alarming for USC. They're one of the schools that can turn it on over the summer into the fall and and get the numbers up. It feels like it's been a long time since there's been some real recruiting momentum, especially when you put it on the heels of that 2019 class where again, some very good players in that 2019 class what you're probably going to remember from it is at the very end when you lose Puka Nakua and you lose brew mccoy to a transfer go ahead and jump well, in I, no i
1: i no points well taken <laughs> um i am i am not uh as pessimistic about sc's recruiting okay as uh i think some of the fans are to be honest with you and and i've seen it so many times and some of the other old fogies like myself uh will tell you you know right now uh Everyone's sitting there saying, well, look at, uh, I don't know why I heard one of the big gurus of the uh, recruiting sites was saying uh, the whole thing is a disaster. The, 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 the. It may very well be uh, today, okay, today in March, it's a disaster, but they're not signing until December. And from what I've heard, read, and talked to, most of the kids – are keeping an open mind to USC. They don't know what's going to happen with Helton. Okay, they don't know which directions the program's going into. To me, you have to keep in mind that most schools, the kids would not be keeping an open mind. They'd say, oh, "I'm not going to even consider that." SC is one of the few schools in the country that can look like they're going downhill. They make a coaching change, and all of a sudden, these kids are going, hey, SC's back. Uh, you know, I hate to you know, to be uh, – well, I will be. <laughs> you know, Clay Helton doesn't make it through the season, and SC hires a Bob Stoops or an Urban Meyer or somebody of that ilk. Uh, hopefully, they're smart enough to do it uh, because the the terrain – of college football now and the expectations are so high and you very rarely get a shot to, to to go after somebody. But if they let's just use it for sake of argument. Suppose Urban Meyer says, okay, I'll be the next SC coach. Do you think SC's recruiting isn't going to take a 180 degree turn immediately? Not only locally, but nationally? Of course it is. Sure. You know, so my feeling is is yeah, I don't like seeing kids, you know, say, well, I'm keeping an eye on them. Okay. But I put myself in my, in their position. Even, uh, you know, take a look at, um, you'll probably remember the kid's name. The kid is an alignment from St. John Bosco, the center. And, um, right now. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, I guess his grandmother, everybody just loves SC, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden he's kind of leaning towards Stanford. Okay. Well, you know, you never have to, you're never going to feel bad if you lose a kid to Stanford, basically, because Stanford's a whole different uh, animal, so to speak. But here's a kid where you go, well, why wouldn't he go to SC? You know, is Stanford so good? I think it's the question of, of, um, uh, David Shaw's there. They have stability. They know where they're going. Chances are Shaw's going to be there when he's there, but, Let's see what happens if SC does make a coaching change. And by the same token, giving Clay Helton the benefit of the doubt, what happens if all of a sudden they go 10-2? and And I know what some of the people listening are saying. If they go 10-2, and I must be dreaming. But the point is, is what happens if they do? You know, the kids just want to see and be reassured that if they go to SC, they're not going to do what Drew McCoy did, which was go there for three weeks. And then say, oh, "I don't like it here. I'm out of here." That to me is like a big warning flag for me. I don't know.
0: How do you feel about it? Well, you didn't take my bait with the pessimistic setup. You you were a little uh, more more optimistic than I've come to expect from you on on certain topics. <laughs> uh, but but I agree with you. I, I think that USC with recruiting is in again coming off a five and seven season where everybody and i mean i mean everybody recruits parents people who talk to recruits coaches all of it uh kind of could not throw more negative recruiting at usc with the coaching situation that's a tough thing to recruit through uh that's a tough thing to keep Kids interested, and like you said, keeping an open mind about it. USC is one of just a a handful of programs that can turn it on in a big way. And if they really wanted to, when things are going well, could fill out a recruiting class in about 48 hours. Uh, Exactly. Something that they still have the ability to do. I think the coaching thing this season uh, could be, should be. A benefit. Um, it's you. Sh- you most likely won't have a difficult decision to make. It won't be something where you know should we make a change? Should we not? Uh, like you said, if he does really well, I think that maybe is uh, you know the the bigger benefit because then you don't have that you know, the transition and and kind of killing time with that. But if he does well and they have a really good season, I, I think this is something where the recruiting class fills out pretty quickly and, and potentially with some big-time names that they're still in it for. Uh, if there is a change, I think the one thing that you're starting to run into with a problem now is, again, if there is a change, if there isn't a change, if they do well, if they do poorly – That early signing period comes up quickly after the end of the year. You used to have some time where you could sort of get stuff figured out and still put that January push together. And even if you had just a terrible year, we saw programs do it every year, a terrible year, they were able to fix some things, throw together that January recruiting push, and still sign a bunch of guys in February. Those guys aren't there anymore. That mid-December signing period is the signing period now. You are sort of putting a few finishing touches on your class in February, but you don't get to wait until February anymore. So if this turns into something where it takes a while to get momentum going or there is some and then it ends, that December period comes up quickly. And I'm curious to see how well USC does this spring and summer in laying the groundwork to deal with that. I don't think that they did a great job last year of doing that. I think some other programs, they understood what that early signing period was going to do. They made a few adjustments to how they were recruiting and they were able to really take advantage of that early signing period. I'm curious to see if USC has adjusted and if they can, if they could take advantage of that, because again, This is a program and this is the kind of class, especially with a guy like Bryce Young, quarterback Bryce Young for modern day. He's a guy that can lead a class and that is willing to do that. If there's some momentum, he gets involved. I think that you can still put together a big time class. I think looking at the three commitments right now, isn't, you know, it's, at this point, if guys are not signed, looking at the commitment list is almost never the best way to judge how the class is going to end up. Cause you know, there's going to be a ton of guys flipping in and out. Uh, so, so I'm not, I'm not totally alarmed right now. I do like to see some of the offers going out here this spring. I think um, those offers to me are really interesting when you can go out and actually start evaluating guys. When you see offers, to a guy you've never heard of before at this time. A lot of fans will, you know, oh, they're, you know, down to their 10th option at at offensive tackle or that kind of stuff. But I like when coaches can go out and do some in-person evaluations. And I think that, you know, if you're going to tell me a sophomore in high school and now, you know, now kind of moving toward his junior year or a junior who's going to start moving toward his senior year, that's still a ton of, transition and adjustment that those guys can go through so the idea that you're offering a guy who maybe doesn't have a ton of offers at this point in time that's not anything kind of close to a red flag for me I I like I like those guys that that are sort of peaking as you get into college I think a lot of times you talk about sort of five-star bus and high four-star bus and You know, certainly sometimes it has to do with motivation and just, you know, the wrong fit of a school. I think a lot of times these guys are, can be as good as they're going to get as a senior in high school. And, you know, those guys oftentimes will look really good, but you do want to avoid those guys uh, when it comes to recruiting. So, you know, all all of that is just kind of the long way of, of saying that, even though December shortens this a little bit, there's still a long way to go. I'm curious to see what happens, uh, throughout the evaluation camps. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens, um, during the, the summer camps once guys start getting on campus to see any official visitors, uh, coming in this summer and, and that sort of thing. And, when that momentum starts going, because I don't think, I don't think it's going to take until the season. I think you can start building some during the off season. These coaches seem like they really click together and they're going to work hard on the trail and, and they're going to do well uh, hosting guys over the summer. And I think you start maybe seeing a little bit of that momentum and then we'll see which way it goes. I mean, it's going to, after those first six games, Uh, you're going to know that that momentum is, is off the cliff or it's, you know, that space shuttle blasting off. And so we'll kind of see the recruiting class, how it goes from there. I think this is an interesting year. I've I've covered recruiting for a long time and, and you almost always could guarantee that purely wins and losses did not have a major, major effect on a recruiting class, but I think this year you're going to see it as much as any year with USC where winning is going to lead to a, a good class and losing is not again, like you said, unless you make that change and you can get a real quick shot of a head coach or, you know, a big time staff uh, that comes in and, and can, can get that done. But again, you're, up against the clock now with that early signing period.
1: It, it'll definitely be interesting. I think the worst thing that can happen recruiting-wise for SC is if they win like 8-4 and four and uh, ended up going to the Red Box Bowl or something of that nature, where they don't look like they've made any progress, status quo. Uh, and, of course, this is for another conversation, another day. How many wins is it going to take to be a successful SC season? in 2019 and for clay Helton, but that's for another day
0: definitely i and i think that's that's kind of the point is you hope it's an easy decision one way or the other if it's a tough decision that means it's not a great season and you're kind of still stuck in this limbo again where recruits are hearing all the time it's not going to get fixed or you know that's what you're signing up for and that's when it becomes a real issue indeed all right. Well, next week, we are going to find some big time positive topics to talk about uh, here here on the We Are SE podcast. Uh, for Greg Katz, this is Eric McKinney. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.